Welcome to another edition of the Seed Time Money Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Lodick. This is where we help you transform your financial life using timeless biblical principles. I am really excited today. One of my mentors and heroes, Chuck Bentley, is here to chat with us about a kind of complicated topic that we're going to try to make not that complicated. (laughs) We're going to do our best. Ask all the questions. Linda's going to help ask the questions that maybe Chuck and I forgot. Chuck wrote this book called Seven Gray Swans. There's just a lot of stuff in there that is it's just kind of like warnings of things that might be coming that we should be watching out for. And one of them is essentially modern monetary theory, which we'll get into in a second, yeah. but we will. We will. <laughs> but anyway, I want to shorten the intro here. And Chuck, thank you for coming to chat about yeah. this. And I'm really excited to dive in. Well, it's always good to see you, Bob and Linda. And I am excited to get to talk about this with two of you. I'm not capable of talking about it in a super complex way. So all that we need to do to make it simple is going to be a benefit to everybody. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely in the same boat. Here's what's going on. I just read this thing the other day that said 20% of all of the U.S. dollars were created last year in 2020. And then I read something else that said 75% of all U.S. dollars in existence have been created since 2009. This is concerning to me, you know, not to mention the additional stimulus that's going to be coming. And I don't know much, but all I have ever heard is you can't just keep printing money, right? That'll just collapse the economy. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing right now. So I want to chat about this because you wrote about this in the book. This is one of the big things you said we need to watch out for and what's going on. And just to kind of give this out front, this isn't, we're not approaching this from a political angle, like both Republicans and Democrats love printing money. Like this is a universal thing and it affects all of us in the country. So it really shouldn't be a politicized thing. And this will affect the world, right? If our economy collapses. Yeah, it's gonna, it's not gonna be good. So I'm rambling here, Chuck, because I'm trying to figure out what the first question is, but let's start with, for people who don't know, how did our money start? You know, in the history of the U.S., how did it start and how did that change? So like the first 200 years, we did it one way. And then about in the early 1970s, it changed. So can you give us that history and just talk through that a little bit? Well, America has one of the most trusted currencies in the history of the world because that's the basis for having a currency is trust. It's also a strong biblical principle that if you're trusted with little, you'll be entrusted with much. And so we're now the reserve currency of the world. But back to your question, we operated, like most of the world, on the gold standard. So the amount of currency we issued was constrained by the amount of gold that we owned in reserves. I don't know if you grew up hearing about all the gold in Fort Knox, but that was a little bit of it. That was a little saying that you know, you couldn't make me do that for all the gold in Fort Knox. Yeah, yeah. And the idea was how much was in storage that secured the value of our currency. Yeah. But it had limitations. You know, for one thing, you got to keep buying a lot of gold to expand your money supply. Mm-hmm. And so in the 70s, our nation voted under President Nixon to go off the gold standard, which meant nothing backed the value of our currency other than the good faith and credit of the United States. And so we asked the world to trust us with our dollars, and they have. And the the wonderful thing is they still do. But at some point, they will stop. And that's why I think we need to be talking about that trend right now. By the way, Bob, Gray Swan, which is the metaphor in the book, 
is an economic term that references something that is not likely to happen, but it's a major threat, unlikely to happen, that we tend to ignore. Mm -hmm. And I think we're greatly ignoring this particular threat of our money supply. Yeah. Going back to what you're talking about, in terms of us disconnecting from the gold standard and becoming a fiat currency, essentially what that means is before that, I could take a dollar and get an exchange of gold for that dollar. And we can't do that any longer, correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's right. Yeah. You can't do that. <laughs> so is anyone else living off of the gold standard in the world? I'm not do sure. You do you have an idea? No, I think the, the whole world's gone off the gold standard. And there's some movement, Linda, that some nations are thinking about returning to the gold standard and trying to unseat America's position as a reserve currency of the world claiming that they will back their currency by gold. There's a lot of talk about that, but so far no one's been able to successfully do that because the countries that want to do it are typically corrupt and you know mm. nobody wants to trust their currency. <laughs> right. Yeah. Historically, you know, I've always understood that most economists, you know, just like you were talking about, just uh, agreed that if you just keep printing money that this is going to lead to massive inflation and big, big problems. How have things changed or have they changed or how have they changed and how do we get where we are now? Well, you're exactly right. They've changed dramatically since 08, 09. I, I thought it was a surreal moment. Most people watching this interview will remember it when President Bush came to address the nation and he said, essentially, we're near the collapse of our entire economy. And we're going to do everything we can to fix it. And legislation was passed called TARP, T-A-R-P at that time, to begin providing solvency for our banking system. Yeah, And that basically saved the world from a complete collapse of the U.S. economy and ultimately the global economy because all the dominoes are connected. And so when that happened, it began the process of the printing, as you said earlier, we printed more money since 08 or 09, practically since the history of the world. Wow. And we just continue to do so. I think that it's very similar to riding the back of a tiger. You know, it's an exciting ride for a while, but once you, when you got to get off, there's no easy way of getting <laughs> off the back of a tiger. It's a great analogy. So why do they think that this is okay? Like, if legislation has been passed and there are politicians that I would assume are thinking things through a little bit, I, I would hope anyway, why do they not think this is a problem? Well, traditionally, in what's considered economic orthodoxy, people would see it as a great problem, particularly because the money's being printed and deficits are being created year after year after year. It would be time to sound the alarm, like right now. Mm -hmm. Our deficits are 100 to 130% of our gross domestic product. In other words, it's exceeding our income by substantial margins. What's happened, Linda, is politicians have begun to adopt a philosophy called the modern monetary theory. And in that theory, the idea is that someone that issues a currency, whether it's United States, United Kingdom, Japan, Canada, sovereign nations that have their own currency, 
that they can print money very similar to the bank in a monopoly game, that they can do it without consequences. And that is the pervasive economic philosophy, what some call a paranormal philosophy, meaning completely out in the stratosphere as far as departure from the foundational principles that we've always operated by. So modern monetary theory is a concept that has taken root in Washington, D.C., as Bob said, not, not, this is not a, a left or right issue. Without any legislation approving it, it's the practice that is happening right before our very eyes. It's, it's going on right now. We're printing more money than we can afford to print. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, is the most likely scenario of this, I mean, I've always understood it to be this case, but is this true that the most likely scenario is massive inflation or God forbid, hyperinflation? Well, I think so. Yes. I don't think there's any way around that. I mean, there, if you think about how do you get off the back of the tiger, austerity is one program. And that's where you tighten your budget, live within your means and start to pay down your debt. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what yeah. needs to happen. But there's no examples of any country voluntarily agreeing to austerity. <laughs> it's usually forced upon you by your creditors after yeah. they no longer believe you. And so yeah. they, they expect you to, to get your house in order. The, yeah. other, the other solution, and I think one that the government is most likely to, to try, is to hyperinflate their way, or let's just use the word inflate, inflate their way out of the debt. So when dollars get cheaper, so does the debt. It gets cheaper as well. And countries in the past have inflated their way out of this. The danger then is do you create hyperinflation? Let me give you an example that will just make it real. There's a phenomenon in Venezuela right now called the Venezuelan millionaire. Because minimum wage in Venezuela is 83,000 bolivar per month. If you do the math, you know, multiply that times 12, the minimum wage now is everybody is a millionaire. Wow. About that. They've added so much currency to their system that $83,000 a month equals about five U.S. dollars. We think, well, that's that's horrible, right? How could that happen? It sounds so good that I'm taking home eighty three thousand bolivar, but in currency terms, it's really nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what I'm advocating is that we're aware of this problem, that one day dollars could be like bolivars. <laughs> you yeah. could have a whole lot of them, but still not be able to buy food. This is an extreme scenario that I'm talking about, and. What we really need to ask ourselves is, how do we get out of it? How does it come to an end? Because I know and you know, right now, another stimulus is likely on its way. You know, we're going to get more money for nothing and more money is going to be printed. And I'm asking myself, how do they stop this? How do they quit doing it? Yeah, Yeah, because like, is it our job to accept it? Or reject it. <laughs> like, I mean, we've <laughs> talked about this. It's like, well, I guess we can stimulate our economy by spending it like in local businesses or whatever. But at the same time, if they're just printing off more money, like, are we just adding to the problem? Yeah. Well, I think it's a great question, Linda. And 
I've wrestled with that myself because I really, I, I personally did not want to receive stimulus money. And so I've followed suit with some other people who've said, well, why don't you give it away? And, or why don't you invest it in local businesses or do things that would help someone else? Obviously, we can't just send it back. You know, that's not going to help the economic problems that we have. But I think we yeah. do need to be aware that if you are receiving that, at some point, we hope that the government will say, you know, there's some people that just shouldn't be getting money in the mail. And right. they, they start to constrict the distribution of it to people in much greater pain. Mm-hmm. That makes so much more sense. Yeah. I think we should start a non-for-profit to pay off the debt of the government. <laughs> <laughs> well, that non-for-profit would need about $20 trillion. Let's go. And, Let's do it. Yeah. And, we you know, if, you know, in Zimbabwe, I have my hundred trillion dollar bill. If I, I got one hundred trillion dollar uh, U.S. bill one day, I would be able to pay off their debt. Oh my and, gosh! You know, that's the idea behind modern monetary theory: is that debt doesn't matter. That yeah. if you think about monopoly, you don't have to worry about in in the game of monopoly, you don't have to worry about how much money the bank has issued. And that's the idea behind MMT. Some people call it unflatteringly the monopoly money theory that yeah. we can just be the monopoly bank. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about because you've traveled around. You've, I mean, I know you've traveled extensively around the world and you've seen some of these economies devastated by uh, hyperinflation. Like, how does that hit individuals? Yeah, in those economies, like what what happens, you know, when like yeah. you're talking about when there's just massive inflation like that. When uh, I remember hearing a wheelbarrow full of cash in Zimbabwe to go buy a loaf of bread, like situations like that. Like what happens? Well, it's a phenomenon, and I've I've actually seen people experience that, and so I know firsthand. I guess I should say secondhand what really does happen. I was in Zimbabwe. I noticed blowing down the street, I, what I thought was just uh, trash, and it was actually currency. And I stopped and picked it up, and it was, you know, fives and tens and twenties, and it was blowing in the street like garbage. And at that point, I think a trillion dollar bill, which they had printed, could not purchase toilet paper. And so the currency in the street was worth less than toilet paper at the time. And, you know, the people frame these checks that someone paid them with that had a one and 18 zeros behind it for something that they purchased. Wow. It's, it's, it's beyond, it's like a quadrillion dollars and it's beyond our comprehension. They had 240 million, uh, I'm sorry, 2.4 million percent inflation. You know, you're not talking about 10% inflation, you're talking about 2.4 million percent. The government tried to print the money to keep up and it just doesn't work. It eventually collapsed. Here's a weird thing, though. It punishes savers. So Mm -hmm. whatever you've saved essentially becomes worthless. Mm. And people don't save money when money is uh, hyperinflating. They don't save it for a minute. So when they got paid, they would rush to the grocery store and convert it into goods like yep. bread, you know, food. Yep. They would rush to buy gasoline. They would rush to 
take care of their basic needs before prices went up. So as you know, the money supply goes up, prices are going up. And the government tried to implement price controls, which created a black market. Yeah. Because if a vendor is made something for $5 and the government says, oh, you can't raise your price, you've got to sell it for $4 and he's losing money, then he's going to stop doing that. The black market yeah. for food and those things are going to go wild. And the other phenomenon is that debt becomes an asset. Think about this. Let's say you bought a house in Zimbabwe. You have a mortgage for $200,000. Mm-hmm. And through hyperinflation, they give you a $100 trillion bill for, for your paycheck. Well, you could pay off, I don't know, 12 houses or 15 houses if you had debt going into hyperinflation. Yeah. So I'm not advocating that it's good to be in debt going into something like that because it's got its downside. But in those rare cases that it it inverts the economy where saving becomes bad and debt becomes good. Yeah. That's really, really fascinating. And so, all right, let's talk a little bit about how to handle this because I'm really hoping that in the U.S. we don't see anything that insane. And I, I want to believe that uh, our leaders, you know, even though I don't agree with a lot of things that happen, that they are, can prevent something that catastrophic. You know, I mean, and I, I think there's arguments against that, too, because, you know, Venezuela, I, I don't know. Like, it just seems like that's a different animal than what happened in Zimbabwe. And yet still really, really terrible. All that to say Even if we're talking just moderate inflation, much higher than what we've seen, but if we're dealing with higher numbers than what we've seen, what are the best ways to prepare for this? Mm -hmm. Because it does seem that this is inevitable and we're heading in this direction. So what are you doing practically to kind of prepare? Well, let me affirm what you said earlier, Bob. We are different than Zimbabwe or what happened in Germany or Argentina or Iceland or Venezuela. We're different. We're the oldest, most trusted currency being used right now in terms of a global currency. And there's, you know, the most massive economy in the history of the world. And so there's a lot of reason to continue to trust our currency. The other nations went through a political crisis as well as an economic one. And those two factors have to intersect before there's a currency crisis. And as long as we have stabilized government and you know we have people who are trying to solve these problems, it will enhance people's trust in our currency. And so we'll probably not experience a collapse. And I really think a collapse is improbable. Yeah. But inflation on the other hand, is the more likely scenario. One of the things the government will try to do is to implement a tax rate that reduces the amount of money in the system. So some economists that I trust are saying that we will end end up with a value-added tax. And that means, you know, that basically it's a, a federal tax on everything. Every time you spend money, there'll be more uh, taxes so that some of that money supply is pulled back in. And so that's a very practical thing to be aware of. Everything will get more expensive in order to try to control inflation. And so in my view, the way you prepare for it is to follow some of the very same things that you and Linda have been advocating since you started seed time or even before to live beneath your means, 
to have financial margin by increasing your savings, to reduce your debt so that you're not living on the financial cliff, and to be generous and to be in a position to help other people should these difficult things happen. You know, the basics are timeless. And I think it's so helpful to take that seriously in light of a pending threat to the way of life as we've always known it. Inflation is very hard to stop. And it becomes this vicious cycle of increasing the money supply, increasing the cost, and needing to increase the taxes, which is an expense that you weren't prepared for in order to try to contain it. And most of the time in our history, it's worked. But if we have a population that are, that's not prepared for it, it's going to be extraordinarily painful and, and difficult to stop. Yeah. Well, in light of that, I mean, because, yeah, I think that makes most sense. And that's generally what I am telling people when they ask me. It's like, get your stuff in order. Like, now is the time. All right. Well, maybe it's time to finally start working on getting out of debt. You've been putting it off. Like, well, now let's do it. Or save an emergency fund or whatever those things are. I want to hear your thoughts on gold in terms of being a hedge for inflation. Cause I know some people think that some people don't aren't as um, excited about gold. What are your thoughts on that? I've been asked about gold more times in the last 60 <laughs> days, I think than in my entire life. Yeah. I think gold is inverse to the federal deficit. Mm-hmm. So the greater the deficit, the, the greater the price of gold. Why is gold suddenly spiked? Why is silver starting to spike other than, you know, some some other factors dealing with the GameStop phenomenon? Yeah. But why are those commodities spiking? It's because people feel insecurity. And as the debt increases, those commodities go contrary to the U.S. debt. Now, it's interesting because the insecurity that people are feeling is not necessarily going to be properly hedged by gold. However, it is, I do believe it is a good idea to have it as an insurance policy. You know, there's a rotation happening, Bob and Linda, that rotation right now is when people feel insecure, they move towards hard assets, what some people call commodities. And one of the most cherished ones is gold. And so gold, land, platinum, things that retain value, they tend to go up as when inflation goes up. And so it is a good hedge. My advice, Bob, is to view it as insurance, not as an investment. And those are two very separate things. Yeah, completely agree. That makes a lot of sense. We we own a decent amount of gold and that's part of it too. Like as you've probably said a hundred times, gold is not a good investment. (laughs) If you look historically at its returns, that's not what it's for. But in terms of a hedge, yeah, it might make some sense. One other thing here I wanted to bring in, just because I'm curious about your thoughts on this, but tips, and some people might know, treasury insured or uh, inflation protected securities is what it stands for. And basically they're government backed bonds, I guess, that adjust to the inflation level. So if inflation goes up, then you can always adjust to that. And so that's right. So a lot of people really run to them when they're concerned about inflation and you know, it's something that's been on my mind a little bit, but I, I'm like, hmm, the only reason that that works is, again, back to the trust in the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. I think that tips and gold work very similarly. 
they increase when fear increases. I say, a, you know, when you buy gold, you're going long on fear because yeah. it will only yeah. go up when other people are <laughs> continuing to be afraid or they're more afraid yeah. than you. Yeah. And the same principle operates for tips. I mean, I think it's a great source of diversification. Tips in some ways may have more utility because when you and I are talking about gold, we're actually talking about gold bullion. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you're not talking about a gold ETF, but let's just clarify that, Bob. Which are you talking about? And what are those? Because I don't know what that is. Okay. Well, gold bullion being actual physical gold that you can hold. Okay. Whereas an ETF is like an index fund type oh, okay. of thing. You know, we're tied to the price of gold. Yeah. Yeah. So I was actually talking about both because we have both. We own some in a couple, I think, gold ETFs. And then actually do have some physical gold. So yeah, comment on that. Well, I have a friend that's much smarter than I am and a much better investor. And he believes that your strategy is the best one where you own both, where you have a limited amount of bullion for emergencies, for a crisis, for just get you through a 30 or 60 day period where things are settled down and and a new form of currency is issued. So it's it's sort of an extreme scenario. However, on the other hand, an ETF related to gold is much more liquid. It's You can trade it quickly. You can get in and out of it. And he believes that you should have a much higher percent in that form of gold, which is not the real bullion, but just it's has more utility to you in a crisis. So yeah. I think that makes sense. And tips are the same way you can move them quickly. And I think that that's an advantage over having, you know, some actual gold coins. Yeah. And in terms of investing in tips, because I I think, yeah, I I think my biggest concern, and again, this might be a little bit too far out there, but if we're in a situation with actual economic collapse and no one is trusting our government, our currency anymore, because it is backed by the full faith of the U.S. government. And that means so much right now. But as that degrades, which I anticipate that it will in the decades to come, I mean, whether it's FDIC insurance with the bank or all these things that we've always viewed as this guarantee, I'm just, I'm a little bit less confident in that guarantee that I might have been before. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think so. You just have to remember that what causes a collapse that you're talking about is the dual problem of an economic problem that intersects with the political instability. They have to cross. And that means that, you know, everybody says, okay, they've got a huge problem and they can't solve it. That's when people run run for cover. I don't see that scenario in, in the near term. I really don't think that that's what we have to be most concerned about. I think by being informed that this idea of modern monetary theory is being practiced, it, it, what is it really it's being experimented with. And yeah. there should be early warning signs. There should be pain. There should be certain failures of it uh, soon enough that we adjust and reverse course. I yeah. will tell you that the Bible expects us to be vigilant and to be prepared and to, and to look ahead. I think that when the Bible says to be prudent, it means do scenario analysis. Scenario analysis means you face reality. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm asking for us to do. Not to forecast doom and gloom, but to know that the probability exists. 
And look, what you said earlier, Bob, if it serves as a motivator, then that's all good because we need to be living with those sound biblical principles, whether there's a crisis or not. Yeah. And if a crisis is motivating you, then that, you know, all the better that you, you get with it. But I think one of my favorite principles in the Bible when it comes to economics is probably Luke 16, right through 10, 11, and 12, that mm-hmm. if you've been faithful with a little, you'll be entrusted with much. Yeah. All economics run on that principle. Our yeah. personal economics and federal economics as well. Money always flows towards trust. Always. It mm-hmm. runs from fear and it moves towards safety. America has been the safe haven for money for centuries now. And any government that wants to have the reserve currency of the world is going to have to prove to be more trustworthy and more capable than we are. And I just don't see that happening in the short term. But I do see money problems if our government continues to overprint and and to borrow too much. In God's economy, we need to be contrary to the way the government is operating. You know, we we can cast stones at them and say, oh, they're overspending and they're, they have too much debt and they're doing all these foolish things. And then look in the mirror and say, am I doing the same thing? Yeah. <laughs> am I operating that way? Yeah, that's good. You kind of talked about there should be some warning signs and some pains, I guess, of what this would look like if it if we actually started to see inflation. What would that look like? Well, I think you're seeing a little bit of it during COVID. You know, the price of food is starting to go up. Hmm. Our construction materials are going up. Prices are rising. There's been supply chain interruptions and and those sort of signals. When that starts to happen, it will begin to cascade. And as I said before, it's really hard to rein in. What I foresee happening, Linda, is the government may likely go to negative interest rates. And I think that that's a real warning sign that our economy is getting inverted. I hope that never happens, but we're at 0% interest rate effectively right now. Mm. That's a form of economic stimulus that says, you know, saving money is not what we prefer. And so we're going to punish the savers and charge them for putting money in the bank. In effect, it doesn't mean your your mortgage is going negative. It just means the value of what you're sitting on is going negative, and they want you to start spending it and trying to jumpstart the economy. So those are warning signs. I think negative interest rates would be the first warning sign that I would see because that's a departure from economic orthodoxy. All right. Well, let's talk about one more thing before we wrap up. I have another question too, but oh, go ahead. Do you want to hit it? Go for it. I mean, my question is, I feel like Bob alluded to this earlier, saying that a lot of people under 40 probably don't think about this. Why should we care? For people under 40, why should we really care about this? Yeah, I I wrote about that in in the book, Linda, because uh, whether you're under 40 or over 40, uh, a gray swan will impact you personally in ways that you don't anticipate. I told my own story. I I was graduating college when the American embassy in Iran was taken over. They took 52 American hostages when President Jimmy Carter was in office. And to punish them for that bad behavior, 
he implemented an oil embargo, meaning we stopped importing oil from Iran. And and I thought to myself on that day, why should I care? You know, I can still mm-hmm. get gasoline. Well, I had to stand in a line. The price of gasoline went through the roof and the price of gas sipping Volkswagen Beetles went through the roof as well. Oh, yeah. I was flipping Beetles for a living at that time. I was buying them low and selling them high when we had a, an oil embargo. Yeah. But my father hired me to work in the family business because he's he was in oil exploration. The price of oil just soared and we were in a, a boom time. And so I got hired. Uh, a few years later, the hostages were released. President Carter left office and the price of oil fell below what it was before the hostages were taken and I got laid off. And so... <laughs> These things impact your life. Yeah. They impact uh, everything that involves just the day-to-day managing of money. And if we're not aware of the macro picture, we will make a lot of mistakes with our, our personal financial decisions. Yeah. We could talk all day, but I don't want to take up any more of your time. So the book is called Seven Gray Swans, Trends That Affect Our Financial Future. And basically, we talked about one of them, um, which is modern monetary theory and impending inflation and that. It's a Kindle book. It's on the Kindle store. And so run out and check it out. It's a great book. And I think it's something that we should all be paying attention to right now. One of the things I really love about you, Chuck, is I feel like you have a way of talking about things that would maybe freak people out, but being really peaceful in it. Because (laughs) I mean, honestly, because it's like you see what the Bible says, and it's like, we don't have to be surprised by any of this. So yeah, I I love that you wrote this because I feel like it's a peaceful way to talk about maybe some unsettling things. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Linda. I had a really big interview recently that hasn't been published yet, but the guy asked me, what do you think is the most unusual financial advice in the Bible? And I said, well, I think the Bible is the only book that gives us financial advice on how to lose money well and you know, still be joyful. He was like, really? I didn't know the Bible talked about that, but our identity isn't in money. And Bruce yeah. 10 talks about people who joyfully lost all that they had because they had better and lasting possessions. So we can be peace about whatever happens. Uh, God's our provider. And and if, if the currency becomes seashells or Bitcoin or, you know, some form of crazy crypto that we don't even know about as of today, he'll provide for us and we'll be okay. Amen. That's a great way to end it. Chuck, well, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Love hanging out with you as always. Yeah. Well, we're huge fans of Seed Time. We're huge fans of the founders of Seed Time that I'm talking to right now. And God bless you both. (laughs) Same with Crown. We love you. All right. Take care. Thank you. All right. Well, I hope you found this helpful. We had a good time having this conversation and it was beneficial for me to have this conversation. And yeah, I'd just love to hear what your thoughts are on all that. And also, if you have any other suggestions for podcasts that you would like to hear, let me know over on Twitter or reach out to me over on the website, seedtime.com. Have a great rest of your day. Be blessed and we'll see you next time.